Shalom. And um, yes, once again, uh, the uh, Lighthouse Project had to cancel the class. They had some speaker that was brought in. So uh, I am recording this from the Jewish Center, Chabad of North Miami. And um, this week's lecture is called Gut Passion 101, 102, and 103, Understanding the Human Gift of Passion. Um, so let's always begin as uh, let's begin as we always do with a modern day issue before we get into the esoteric because all esoteric teachings need to be able to affect us in the most practical way with modern day issues and how we live our life just a little bit better and how we um, how we serve God. So today's um, modern day issue is going to be when someone feels lifeless. What's going on? What someone feels lifeless, what they really are feeling is a life without a drive, which is a life without a passion. Now, I don't necessarily mean the overwhelmingly, intensely irrational, let it all go type of passion. Actually, I do, but that's just me. But nevertheless, passion at any level is a must to live life with all its challenges and days in and days out. Even the left brain methodical profiles need some sort of passion to get them out of bed in the morning and back into bed at night. Thus, the modern day issue of this lecture is, where does one find passion? This lecture is based primarily on a mimer delivered by the Rebbe Blessed Memory on this Shabbat in 1965. And that mimer is exploring the esoteric depths of the senses and jobs of the three families that made up the tribe of Levi. Um, the tribe of Levi was made up of Gershon, Kahat, and Merari. Okay? So now we know what our goal is um, to use the teachings of Hasidus, the teachings of the Rebbe, to help us understand how we practically go ahead and find passion in our life. Okay, an introduction before we get right into it. This week's Torah portion begins with God's commandment of, take a census of the sons of Gershon, of them too, following their father's houses according to their families. Okay, you saw I made an emphasis on the words of them too. They're not the primary. But what I want to first note is that even though the English translation, the correct English translation is take a census, but the Hebrew words actually used in the verse is naso et rosh. Naso et rosh literally means lift up the heads. But what it means is a head count. Okay, now let's focus on the words I emphasize. What does it mean of them too? Okay, so let's go through this a little bit. Genealogy. Levi, the fourth son of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which made the 12 tribes. Now the fourth son of Jacob was Levi. He had three sons, Kahat, Gershon, and Merari. Now, those three families make up the tribe of Levi as the Jewish people left Egypt. That's how they were counted. Now, last week we learned that because the tribe of Levi was solely dedicated and chosen to do the work in the Holy Temple, therefore, in last week's Torah portion, when God said to count all the Jews, God said, do not count the tribe of Levi amongst them. And the, uh, the commentaries say, it's as the uh, king takes a census, but then he says that the legionoi shomelech, the royal guards, get counted separately. So they counted all the tribes from the age of 20 to 60. Then they start a different counting of the tribe of Levi. Eventually, they count the tribe of Levi by those who are capable of work. Work was defined from the age of 30 
to 50. Now, last week's Torah portion, at the very end, it says, And God commanded Moses to Nassau at Rosh, lift the heads, head count, census of the family of Kehot. And then it goes on to explain what Kehot's job was. Now, this week's Torah portion begins with the second family, the continuation, where God says, And now go ahead and take a head count of the family of Gershon of them too. Meaning, just like last week you did the family of Kahat, this week do it also to the family of Gershon. So there's the words of them too. That's the simple definition of why it says, Gamhem, them too. However, then goes uh, the next commandment, which is to count the third family. And the third family of Levi is the family of Merari. Now over here, God doesn't use the words Naso et Rosh, lift the heads at all. It just says that when you will count them, the numbers of. So we have here, not the family of Kahas says lift their heads, the primary lift their heads. Then you have the family of Gershon, where it says lift their heads, them too. They're secondary, them too. And then you have the third family, count the heads of Merori, and over there it doesn't say anything about the concept of lift their heads. So obviously we're going to go ahead and discuss this. Um, what does this mean in Kabbalah? Everything is precise. Uh, why over here it says the primary lift their heads. By Gershon it says secondary them too. And by Merari just says count. It doesn't even use the terminology of lift their heads. However, I want to share another difference between the three families first. So the three families that made up the tribe of Levi, the Jewish people had the tabernacles and they had to wander, they had to travel in the desert. When they traveled in the desert, the tabernacle had to be dissembled and then it had to be carried. So it was prepared by the Kohanim, Aaron and his sons. However, the carrying was divided amongst the three families of Levi. Levi's job was to carry and transport the Mishkan when the Jews were traveling. Now, the Torah is very precise in which family does what and how they do it. So the first family, Kahat, their job was to go ahead and carry the holy vessel, starting with the holy ark. You have the menorah, you have the two altars, you have the uh, table, you have the wash basin, and all the tools that went along with them. That's what they did. Now, interesting enough, they carried everything by hand. They carried it. They had sticks and then they, the golden uh, badim uh, the, and they carried it. Then comes along the second family, which is the family of Gershon. And they carried the roof curtains. You remember that the roof wasn't uh, a wood roof or a, a golden roof or a brick roof. It was made with three level, layers of beautiful curtains. Those curtains were carried by this family of Gershon. They also carried all the hangings of the courtyard, that type of curtain. They also carried the front door curtain to the Mishkan. They also carried the front door curtain to the courtyard. And they carried all the ropes that went along with the courtyard. That was so far. Then you have the third family of Merari, and they carried the beams the heavy beams that made up all the walls, 
they carried the sockets, they carried all the hooks, and they carried the pillars that held the curtain that went through the through the um, courtyard, and they carried the ropes that went along with the beams of the Mishkan. Now, interesting to note, there were six wagons, six oxen-pulled wagons that were dedicated by the princes of the tribes for this transportation. As I told you, the family of Kahat carried only by shoulder. Only humans carried it. The family of Gershin was half-half. They had two of the six oxen-pulled wagons, and the rest they carried by hand. The family of Merari that carried the heavy beams, they had four wagons, and they didn't carry anything by hand. Now, all of this we're going to see is precise. More importantly, there is the internal sanctuary and how everything that happened in the external sanctuary in the times of Moses the way that happens has to happen spiritually within us. Everything has a spiritual message of how we have a relationship with God and how we serve God. So what is the difference between the three families in the fact that one is the primary lifter heads, the second one is a secondary, them two, and the third one doesn't even get a lifting of the heads? And what is the difference between the family of Kahaz carries only by shoulder, family of Gershon is half-half, the family of Merari only by animal-pulled wagons. So that's the introduction, and now let the, let's start the lecture. Okay, um, for those of you who are familiar, have been here before, uh, we start off by giving a list of mystical concepts that we're going to have to explore and discuss, after which we're then going to bring it back home and make it practical. So here's a list. First mystical concept, what does it mean lift the heads? What does that mean? Second mystical concept, what does it mean Torah study versus mitzvah observance? Third mystical concept, what is the foundation beams that made up the walls of the holy Mishkan? Fourth mystical concept, it's all about mobility, not being stationary, but mobility. And then the fifth and final concept we're going to discuss is what does it mean Passion 101, 102, and 103? And now, let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay, so let's go to the first topic, lift the heads. What does it mean to lift the heads? According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, this is meant literally to lift the head means to rise above the faculties of intellect which are in the head. And where are we rising to? Above the faculties of intellect is the faculty of will, the power of will. Now, let's talk about this. The human brain presents the three lobes, the three parts, which is wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. But then there is the skull structure, which is sort of like a crown that wraps around the brain. Now, that represents the power of will. Now, more precisely, the power of intellect is very finite. Everyone has their capacity of what we can perceive, what we can understand, and what we can know. That is called linear and finite. While the power of will represented in the encompassing circular skull represents the infinite. The power of will knows no limitations, and it's not stuck in any dynamics. You can want to run a marathon, move your feet. You can want to be able to draw with your hands. You can want to meditate with your mind. The power of will, that infinite circular power, encompasses all of us. 
Now, now that we understand the difference, we understand what Nasoas Rosh means. Go up from your finite relationship of understanding God to the infinite power of surrendering our will to God. Now, in order to understand this, I want to take you back to Genesis. When God created mankind, what does the verse say? Let us create man in our likeness and image. Then the verse goes on to say, and God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Thus, everything that happens by us is a reflection of the way God set it up in his infinite light. So if we have the three intellects, linear, finite, and we have the circular encompassing power of will, it's because within the infinite light, there is these two expressions of light. There's the infinite encompassing light, and there is the finite intellectual emanations. They're very different. One is the supernal crown, and one is called the three head emanations. Now, what we're saying here is that by us being able to surrender into, I need to understand, what I understand is real, what I don't understand is ridiculous, and to be able to let go of that, not making God as small as we are, but allowing ourselves to fall into how big God is, that is the Naso Esrosh. That is the lifty heads, transcend beyond the I need to understand. And what makes sense is what I understand, and what doesn't make sense, I don't understand. Or if I don't understand it, it doesn't make sense. But rather to surrender into the power of will of God, to use my infinite circular encompassing power of will, to use that to have a relationship to God expressed by obedience. I surrender my will to your will. Thy will be done. That is what helps us in the spiritual sense go from having a relationship with the three head emanations of the infinite light, the linear finite wisdom, understanding, and knowledge into entering into the supernal crown. And when we enter into the supernal crown relationship with God, we now have an unconditional infinite relationship with God. Now, how does that work? Sounds all beautiful. Lift your head. Go from the intellect into the will. How do we do that practically? How do I surrender my will to God? What does that mean? What does it look like for a functioning human being? The answer is that it works in two levels. The reason why it works for two levels within us is because, again, in the image of the infinite light, the supernal crown has an inner dimension and an external dimension. Very two difference. There's the part of the crown that's internal, and then there's the external. Now, obviously, the internal is far greater than the external, as we will soon explain. But because it is that way in the image of God, meaning the way God set up the infinite light, thus, in our service to God, there's going to be two dimensions of lift your head. Go from the finite arrogant, I need to understand, to the surrender of the power of will, to surrender of obedience, to accept God's will, happens in two dimensions because there's two dimensions of God's supernal will, external and internal. What are those two dimensions? Those two dimensions is A, Torah study, B, mitzvah observance. Two different dimensions. Now let's talk about it. There is differences, primarily two differences, 
between the relationship we have with God through Torah study and the relationship we have with God through mitzvah observance. Yes, they're both lift your head, but they're two different dimensions. One dimension is a difference in us, and one dimension is a difference in how it is by God. So let's talk about this. Torah study. What do we do when we study Torah? When we study Torah, we internalize, we digest the teachings of Torah. Thus, we also have this because the source of Torah is the internal dimension of the supernal crown, known in Kabbalistic language as the three heads of the ancient one, blessed be he. The Atika Kadisha, it's the three heads. Thus, it's the internal of the internal. And because Torah study is the will of God that comes from the internal of the internal, thus it expresses itself to us that we can internalize it and we can digest it. Just thus the study of Torah is not just to have emunah, faith. Okay, whatever God says, is, I, I agree. No, understand it, digest it, make it yours. The internalization of the higher dimension, the internal dimension of the crown. Mitzvah observance is not like that. Mitzvah observance is also the will of God. Why do we do what we do? Because God wants us to do it. End of story. However, when you put on the tefillin, your hand doesn't internalize the tefillin. Put it on, take it off. Thus, we're experiencing that we are encompassed by the will of God, but we do not digest and internalize the will of God. Thus, in mitzvah observance, we're having the encompassing relationship, while in Torah and mitzvahs, we're having the internalization digestion. The reason for this is because, as we mentioned, the source of the Torah is the internal dimension of the supernal crown, the power of will of God, so to speak. Thus, too, the mitzvah observance is source is within the external dimension of the supernal crown of the supernal crown. And in the source of the source, it is what we call in Kabbalah the seven lowers of the holy ancient one. Thus, because it comes from that external encompassing source, thus we experience the relationship that way. So we have the difference between Torah study and mitzvah observance. Torah study is to internalize and digest that which comes from the highest of the highest, the internal dimension of the supernal crown, the faculty of will, the infinite will of God. And then there's the mitzvah observance, which we can just be hugged, embraced, and encompassed by the will of God, which comes from its source, which is the external encompassing dimension of the supernal crown. Well, now we'll understand the difference between kahat and gershon. By kahat, which was the primary lifter head, what did they carry? Well, they carried the holy ark. What was in the holy ark? That was the place of the Torah. The two tablets, according to one opinion, there was a Sefer Torah in it. Another opinion has a shelf right next to it. But the Holy Ark represents Torah study. And thus, when the Torah tells us, lift your heads, who is the primary lift the heads? 
Who is the one that gets into the internal of the supernal crown? The crown, the highest of the highest, the three heads of the holy ancient one, blessed be he. That is through Torah study, which represents Kahat. And thus the Kahat within me and you is the service of Torah study. That type of lift your head. However, we have then the next family, Gershon, which is secondary. Why is it secondary? Why is it them too? It's because the family of Gershon carried the encompassing roofs, the curtain roofs. And that is representing mitzvah observance. Mitzvah observance is secondary to Torah study in the sense that it only reaches the external dimension of the supernal crown, the seven lowers of the holy ancient one. And we in our relationship can't digest it. We can only be encompassed by it. Thus, we now understand the first two families of Levi. Torah study, the primary lift their heads, internalize, digest the relationship of the supernal crown, the inner dimension supernal crown, and then the family of Gershon, which is secondary, which is mitzvah observance, secondary only in the fact that it is only encompassing us and it only has the source connection with the external encompassing dimension of the supernal crown. Now we can move on to the third family, the third family of Merari, where it doesn't say anything about lifting the heads. Now, their job was to carry the foundation of the Mishkan. The foundation of the Mishkan didn't dig into the ground because it had to be mobile in the desert. So the foundation actually is the beams, the heavy beams that made up the walls of the Mishkan. Now, what does that represent in the service of God? We had Torah study. We had mitzvah observance. What does carrying the beams represent? Carrying the beams represents the foundation of religion, which is called Yirat Shamayim, simply translated as fear of heaven. It is to stand in awe, the humility of awe. Love has got an arrogance. I love, I love. Awe, fear, has a total humility. And thus the foundation of faith is standing before God in an awe relationship, expressed even in the sentiments of a fear of the greatness and awesomeness and infinite greatness of God. Kind of like what you feel when you stand at the Grand Canyon and you're like, wow, I feel like so small in the face of such greatness. It's a sense of humility and awe that can family of fear. Thus, it's Yirat Shemayim. The question is, how does one acquire Yirat Shemayim? The answer is by having the consciousness, the conscious knowledge of a verse in Psalms. The verse in Psalms says, Hashem I have placed God before me constantly. If we can just be conscious of God's presence here, then we stand in awe and in fear of rebelling against God. That notion of no one's looking isn't here. Thus, the concept of fear of God is built on the conscious mind by studying the awesomeness, studying the greatness of God. And thus we're going to understand now that the work of Merari, the work of having Yirat Shamayim, is not by lifting your head, but actually within the head to study, to study the ways of God through the laws of nature 
to study the ways of God, the justice of God, the compassion of God, to study the infinite greatness, to understand that the difference between creator and creation is not just of quantity and quality. It's exponentially a total different quantum leap. There is nothing in common between us and God. And thus, when we stand in front of God, if I stand in front of the Himalayas or I stand in front of the Grand Canyon and feel so small with awe, thus the more I become conscious that God is not just my big brother, buddy, buddy, but who God is in the face of who I am. By studying consciousness, God is here right now. God is everywhere. Thus, we have fear of God, Yirat Shamayim. Thus, the service of Merari is not lift your head into the surrender of, of the will. It's about think, think. Don't act impulsively in front of who do we always stand? Who are we? Who is God? What is the relationship between us and God? What is the relationship between the finite me and the infinite greatness? It's all about thinking. Be conscious. Thus, the Merari family doesn't say, lift your head. It says, use your head. And now we understand why Merari carried the beams. It's all about the service of consciousness, the foundation of faith. The foundation of our relationship is not loving God. It's first having the humility of standing in awe before God. Okay. Now, according to this, we have the family of Kahat and Gershon going into the realm of the circular infinite, not remaining stationary, finite within the capacity of the mind. However, according to this, the family of Marari does not transcend into the infinite. It rather remains within the finite, dedicated to God, but finite. Now, that is going to be a little bit of a contradiction to what we actually understand. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, it says that the deeper meaning of why the Jewish people traveled with the Mishkan throughout the, the desert is to be able to have the souls transcend from stationary into mobility, from finite into infinite. Now, this talks about every Jew, the Gershon, the Kahat, and the Merari. So we're going to have to take a deeper look into Merari and understand where Merari is truly infinite in its relationship with God and not stuck just in the finite capacity of the human perception. Now, to understand this, I'm going to have to quote to you a verse that we're taught. Okay? The verse says like this. Oh, by the way, I want to just say, sorry, parenthetically speaking, by this understanding, a deeper look into Gershon, Kahat, and Merari, we're also going to understand why Kahat had to carry everything by human shoulders, why Gershon was half human shoulders, half animal pulled wagons, and why Merari was all animal pulled wagons. Now let's look into this to understand what is really going on with Gershon, Kahat, and Merari on the infinite level. We're going to understand what it means, Passion 101, Passion 102, and Passion 103. Okay, let's understand what it means that humans are, are charged 
with not being stationary within our comfort zone, but become mobility to travel from the finite security zone of, okay, I I'm, I'm feel comfortable here, into the infinite. Now, to understand this, we need to understand a verse in Zechariah. Let me share with you this verse in Zechariah, which tells us the difference between the celestial angels and the terrestrial humans. What happens when God sends the soul into the terrestrial body? So the verse says like this. It's in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 7. And I will give you free access. Now, literally, it says mahalchim, which means traveling, mobility among those who stand by, meaning stationary. Now, what the verse refers to, if you look into the commentaries, what is Zechariah talking about? He's talking about the soul's free access, mobility, traveling, uh, which are among the angels, the standing, the stationary. Okay, so as great as angels are, they are and always will be what they were created as. The human soul, when God sends a soul down into this world, through that process, somehow, we're going to soon see how, through that process, the soul is able to shed the form it was created in and experience its inner dimension of infinitism, if there is such a word, infinity, to be able to go into the mahalchen, free access, to be able to have the circular infinite mobility power. How does that work? Okay. We're going to need to understand a little bit about the animalistic soul, i.e. body, the soul of the body, and the godly soul, the one that God blew into the nostrils. Now, what is the difference? The animalistic soul, the animal kingdom, we are taught, comes from the world of tohu. Tohu is chaos. The godly soul, the human, comes from the world of tikkun. Tikkun means orderliness. Now, in the world of Tohu, there was such chaos because the lights would not contain themselves. Thus, they being infinite, they expressed themselves infinitely, and thus the vessels could not contain them, and it shattered. And sparks of that infinity, chaos, fell into this world. That is the source of the chaotic passion of the animalistic soul. Thus, the animal has the power of being irrationally passionate. Now, the godly soul is from Tikkun. Tikkun is where the lights realize if we want to be orderly, we're not going to be able to express our infinity. We're going to have to contract ourselves. Thus, they had the diminishing of the light, the thickening of the vessels, so that it was sustainable. What that would mean to us, practically speaking, is that the human's mind, the power of the intellect, is a cooling system which doesn't allow the emotional system to overboil. And thus the mind has the power to, okay, let's not go crazy now. Let's breathe. Let's calm ourselves down. Let's rise out of the limbic system into the frontal cortex. Let's go from the emotions into the intellect. And the intellect really is like a guardrail. It's like a cage that just doesn't allow humans, functioning, functional humans, to go passionately crazy or go into chaotic emotions. So the animal has the power 
And the human does not have the power of being irrationally passionate. Thus, when God sends the intellectual, the godly soul into the animalistic soul's domain, and suddenly within the human being you have both. You have the animalistic soul, chaotic, and you have the godly soul, rational. It's the first time that the godly soul will ever experience what it means to watch someone go irrationally chaotic, passionate. Now, we're talking about in a good sense, right? Being passionate about Israel, being passionate about God, being passionate about your fellow man, being passionate about your people. We're talking about a good passion. But the intellectual mind of the human, godly soul, doesn't allow us to take it too far. We'll never get caught going crazy. The animalistic soul is the one that's going crazy. It has no problem to have the emotions completely override the brain and just all out, passionate, chaotic. So the first level is that level of passion. That's passion 101. Then, however, you have the other concept of passion, which is the next level, which is where the godly soul gets infected by the animalistic soul. And then when you're able to help the godly soul shed, shed its outer shell of linear logic, emotions, mind over matter, control, contain, monitor, regulate. When it's able to shed that, then the godly soul goes into its own unprecedented passion. So let's talk about this now. I want to share with you how this all is found in a verse of King Solomon in the book of Songs, which talks of passionate love between God and us. This is in chapter 1, verse 4. Draw me, we will run after you. The king brought me to his chambers. This is a verse made up of three different phrases. Draw me, we will run after you. The king brought me to his chambers. I want to first point out some very specific differences in the language of each phrase of this verse. Number one, draw me. Here, A, we need to be drawn. It's not me coming. It's draw me. Number two, it's the singular tense. Me, draw me. Phrase number one. Phrase number two of the verse. We will run after you. Here, A, we need not be drawn but rather we run on our own. And B, it is the plural tense of we. We run, not I run. And then you have the final third phrase of this verse. The king brought me to his chambers. Now here, it is God the king who brings. And B, it is the singular tense of me. The king brought me. Now I want to just point out the difference between phase one and phase two. Three, in phase one, we need to be drawn, but it doesn't say the king is drawing me. It says, draw me. And we'll soon see that that's the animalistic soul talking to the godly soul. The third phase is about the king brings me, brought me to his chambers. It's God bringing us. Okay, let's go now and translate this into Passion 101, Passion 102, and Passion 103. Passion 101, draw me. 
The first experience of infinite passion can only be within the animalistic soul of Tohu. Only that on its own, the animalistic passion, the animalistic soul's passion is self-centered. Me, 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 me. I'm not passionate about anyone else or anything else. I'm passionate on what makes me feel good. So the animalistic soul is the first experience of, it's the first part of our psyche that can experience passion, but on its own, it's egocentric. Thus it says, draw me, godly soul, introduce me into theocentric. Can you grab a hold of my power of passion and draw me from the self-centered egocentric to the theocentric selflessness? That's the first one. So over here we're talking about the animalistic soul is saying through the work of Yirat Shamayim, through the family of Merari, can you please draw me? I know that I have the beautiful power of passion, says the animalistic soul within us, but it's going to go perverse. I need you to draw me, bring me into Yirat Shamayim, make the center of my being not I, but God. And thus, the service here of the animalistic soul, and thus the family of Merari, the, fa the founding service of Yirat Shemayim, the godly soul drawing the animalistic soul, it's all about the animal drawn wagon. This experience of passion is only about the animal. Now let's go to Passion 102. We will run after you. The second experience becomes plural. Why? Because in the second experience, once the animalistic soul has become a mensch, it's not all about me, 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 and I don't care. I want what I want, and I want when I want. I want what I want, and I want it now. Rather, it's becoming more conscious. That work of the head, that work of Merari, bringing the center and presence of conscious presence, of God's presence here. Thus, it's now more selfless than self-centered. Now that begins to infect the godly soul. And suddenly the godly soul, which is so prim and proper, always mind over matter, always tikkun, orderly, always containing, all of a sudden he gets a taste of what it means to not only intellectually serve God, but to be able to passionately serve God. Thus in this experience, there's the plural there's the animalistic soul and the godly soul as the animalistic soul goes ahead and infects the godly soul and says, you know something? You got to sometimes let your hair down and dance in the rain. It's not always about being so proper. Let go. Can you really experience the feeling of loving God passionately? And thus here we have the plural experience of a rider, i.e. the godly soul, our human side, Riding its stallion, i.e. the animalistic side, the animal side of us. And thus here that galloping is we will run after you. How does that happen? By doing physical mitzvot. The physical is the animal pulled wagon. Mitzvot is a spiritual concept of God. Thus you have the physical doing spiritual, the rider on the stallion, the animalistic soul working with the godly soul. And here is passion 102. 
And thus in mitzvah observance, we are taught that it's both carrying, the human carrying and the two animal pulled wagons. And here we go to Passion 103, the highest and the greatest. The king brought me to his chambers. The third and final experience of passion is where the godly soul is brought into its source of sources, the essence of the king within the king's private chambers, the internal dimension of the supernal crown. Now understand that no creature, no creation can run its way into that. However, once the, animal, once the godly soul was infected by the powerful passion of the animalistic soul and is able to shed its outer confinements, thus the king now brings the godly soul, the pintalayid, into its essence source of sources. And thus, here, the godly soul enters into an unprecedented, infinite love, passion, and oneness with God. Here, the godly soul goes alone. It's once again singular. For only the godly soul has this essence relationship with God. Thus the work of Kahat is carried only by the human, the godly soul, in the service of Torah study. And now we can go into the closing. Now we understand why there's the difference, the primary of lift their heads. There's a secondary of lift their heads, them too. The primary is Torah study the godly soul, the secondary is the mitzvah observance, a union between physical mitzvahs, the animalistic soul and the godly soul. And then there is the first level of merari, using the consciousness, the foundation, the yirat shamayim, to be able to get and transform and draw the animalistic soul's beautiful power of passion from self-centeredness into becoming selfless and theocentric. Now, before I go into the modern day issue and talk about how can we obtain passion when we feel so lifeless, lifeless, you know, there's a great word called, um, what's it called? Battlefield fatigue. There's a time when we just go ahead and we just, uh, <laughs> we're just so worn out from the day in and day out of trying to make it all happen. And thus, everyone needs passion. But before we go into that, I want to share with you, very interesting, at the very end of the Mimer, after the Rebbe explains that 101 is fear of God, 102 is mitzvah observance, 103 is the godly soul's Torah study relationship, the Rebbe then flips it all over and says, you should know that the highest level of connection with God is not the spirituality service of the godly soul, but when the godly soul refines the animalistic soul, because that's where the true passion and desire of God is, to see how we go ahead and transform our animalistic soul for him. Only that today, we don't have that revelation. Today's revelation is the work of the godly soul. When Mashiach comes and the curtain will be lifted, we'll see that ultimately the work of Merari, the work of making a divine mensch out of our animalistic being is the ultimate relationship with God. With that being said, let's now go into the closing and talk about how do we find passion. The struggle we have with finding passion in our everyday lives stems from our compartmentalization 
our compartmentalizing, oops, sorry, compartmentalizing our lives, our head from our heart, our animalistic soul from our godly soul, our bodies from our souls, and our Jewishness from our secularism. Mostly it stems from our control issues in not letting go and allowing ourselves to experience rather than just to know. There are these tight reins that we hold on to, not to be irrational or not to be caught being too excited about our Jewishness. Let's keep it cool here. That type of passion can only be safely displayed for sports and entertainment, but not for Jewishness. Oh yeah, I've watched people, grown men, scream at the screen or jump up on the couch. That's okay when we're talking about sports and your team is now at, at the finals. But we, we can't really do that about being Jewish. And thus, however, we need to understand that ultimately the passion of sports can't carry us through life. We need a deeper existential passion in which our animalistic soul stallion and our godly soul rider can gallop freely and passionately. We need a wholesome passion, one that expresses who we most truly are. True passion is to be found in our Jewishness, from which we can then bring it into all areas of our lives. Thank you.